Hi, everybody. It's Dennis Daly, inviting you to join me for the next hour, right here. And our time together is called Vintage Vincennes. I hope you've been enjoying the interviews I found in my archives and some of the new ideas presented every week right here. And when I was first starting out in radio, my hero was Charles Kuralt, who did that wonderful show on CBS on Sunday mornings, and he was replaced with Charles Osgood. Well, I never got to talk to Charles Kuralt, but I did have Charles Osgood on my show. I was at UPI in Los Angeles. He was in our studios in New York City. We still never met face-to-face, But I mentioned to him that we had lived in D.C. during the same era, but we never met. Yeah, I I enjoyed living in Washington a long time. I was there for, I guess, eight years, and then um, went to Hartford after that. But I, I, for the radio, for the uh, classical music station there, you know, WGMS. Oh, sure. And also was the announcer for the U.S. Army Band Mm -hmm. at at Fort Myer. That was my my active duty. A lot of young kids today, of course, radio is is not. I mean, you can't even compare today in the 70s. But we were running those those half-hour public affairs shows, uh, uh, Serenade in Blue that the Navy was doing, and the the program, the Army and and the Air Force, and uh, people like Charles Hughes. Yes, well, Charles, I I knew Charles very well. He he went to Fordham, uh, as did I, and he was he was. I guess one year ahead of me, but he worked at the radio station, WFUV, mm-hmm. and uh, it, that's how I ended up going to Washington. He had spent some time at, at WGMS, Wow! and, and uh, I know that he was doing the same kind of thing for the Air Force that I was for the Army, but he was doing it, uh, he was stationed, I think, up at the Limestone, Maine, Mm. Uh, when he was in the Air Force, but he did, but st- he was still doing, he was still doing some uh, radio shows. Well, so people don't realize that with the military bands in Washington, so much music came out of there. I mean, oh, yeah. known stars were coming in to do these public affairs shows, either as a tax write-off or whatever. There was some great music being generated in Washington. People forget that. Remember, uh, Eddie Fisher was the singer for the U.S. Army Band. Right, and, I and, forgot. And then after that, it was uh, Steve Lawrence. So they've had, they've had uh, not only good singing talent. Also, while I was there in the Army Band. Uh, George Shirley came along at that time, and just shows you how times have changed. The very first African American to be in the United States Army Band or Chorus was uh, was the singer George Shirley, who went on to have a very distinguished career at the Metropolitan Opera. Wow! And the reason that they always said, you know, when they were when they were auditioning uh, black musicians, that well, you know, a lot of talent there, but you know, but they hadn't gone to the right conservatories and all that kind of stuff, but. George could do anything. I mean, every every piece of music you could put up for him, he had a fabulous range and a, you know a great, great musicality about him. There was no way that you could, uh, and it was way way overdue anyway. Charlie, uh, off the record, how old are you? I'm 66. Oh boy, wouldn't have known it. The reason I ask is I'm well then at 52. It still amazes me that when we used to visit my cousins in Washington D.C., I remember asking my dad what the sign "Whites Only" meant. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's in our lifetime. That's right, and, and you and it's it's tough to tell people about that that they just can't you know relate to it. And this is in the nation's capital, and of course in you know in, in Virginia, which is uh, uh, where Fort Myer is, and and, and there, there's no question but that uh, there was still a lot of segregation around at that time, and the you know and this the civil rights years uh, of the years of uh, Martin Luther King, the the demonstrations and marches, and and the civil rights laws didn't happen until 
you know, five or six years after that. Well, you remember that classic picture. If you can picture Capitol Hill on the back, I call it the backside, uh, 6th and 7th Street East on Pennsylvania Avenue. There's mm-hmm. a restaurant there named Mr. Henry's, I think. And, but that whole area, some of the worst slums in the U.S. were, were in the shadow of the Capitol building. No, uh, but on the back side. It's, it has not completely changed. No, <laughs> not at all. There's a little bit of a 60-cycle hum I'm hearing on your mic, but I think I can feel it I don't out. think... I'm hearing it also, but I don't think it's on my mic. Hmm. It may be that I, control board. I can fix it. This wonderful... I didn't think I like digital editing. I, I love recording tape. But the new digital recorders we have, you can tell them to do anything. So I'll just take this out later. Don't worry about okay, it. Okay, I don't... I can't... There's nothing in this room that's making that noise, but I'm hearing it in my earphones. You're not humming, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, aside from that, that's actually... Did, I just did, had lunch. You know. Did you know Tom Gager with no. ABC? Uh, Tom was a, an aficionado of the bands. The, the other thing I was going to say about Charlie Hughes is I did a recording session with him one time, and he was doing the booth for a Brinkley show. Right. And he was saying, this week with David Brinkley. And I got him to say, this week without David Brinkley. Just to be funny. <laughs> and when Brinkley retired, I had that cut of him running. I don't know whether he like the fact I used it or not. Oh, I haven't you, talked to Charlie in years, but we used to be really quite good friends sweet uh, guy. back when we were going to school. And uh, the thing is, I was a, uh, I was a, uh, an enlisted man in my, in my military duty, and Charles, who had uh, successfully completed the ROTC program at, at uh, Fordham, was an officer. He was a second lieutenant. Mm. Are we okay? Yeah. Oh, okay. Can, anybody, can you hear the noise that he's talking about? I'm, I'm talking to, to oh, okay. the technician here. We, we're, not, we're only hearing this coming back. It must be something in the something between here and there, I guess. Oh well, okay. Um, I've got my board turned off to you, so we'll live with it. Don't. It's not terrible. Uh, I shouldn't be such a perfectionist. But I'm, am I hearing you over the telephone? I mean, I'm hearing you. Well, you're this. just hearing me on the phone. Oh, I and, see. And they're just feeding me your mic. I see. So that way, I'm not mixed in with it at all. Okay, Charlie, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, I moved to the West Coast a couple of years ago, and one of the reasons I moved to uh, L.A. was to be closer to San Francisco. Anyone who has gone through or lived there hears you every hour doing the IDs on KCBS. Are, do you know they're still using you there? I, I, I'm told that they are, and, and we refresh those every so often. Well, they sound great. And also, uh, of course, we do the Osgood File broadcasts on KCBS uh, for four times a day. How long have you been doing the Osgood file, and how long has it been that frequent every day? You know, I have been doing either the Osgood file or some other show just like the Osgood file, but with a different name, for about uh, 35 years now. Mm-hmm. Have you always done poetry? Uh, poetry sort of snuck in there along the line somewhere. It was never really my intention to do poetry, but when you're doing four different shows each day, uh, sometimes you look for you know different ways of doing things, and I started doing that while I was working for the local radio station for uh, for WCBS Radio uh, here in New York. I must say that over the years, those of us who love broadcasting have a great affinity for CBS. I worked at an affiliate in Southern Indiana for ten years, and got to know a lot of the people in New York. Uh, I guess I'm old enough to, to still have that slavish devotion to the Edward R. Murrow era, of whom I guess Dan Shore is about the only one left from there. But I've always thought that when it comes to news, and, and particularly gentle things, such as Charles Carroll did over the years, you guys really know how to do it best. I think that people uh, have often said that, that it seems strange that CBS News had been able, over all those years, to come up with people like, like uh, Walter Cronkite and Severide. Um, Morrow, um, Bill Moyers was at CBS before he moved on to, uh, to, uh, to, to public television. Um, and 
and as you say, Coralt, uh, maybe Coralt more than almost anybody, but then and also Andy Rooney, sure, uh, and. Uh, I don't know. It just it just seems that to walk, to work here and walk the halls during during all of those years, and even and even still today, uh, it is uh, they've been very fortunate. I, and I think part of it is that they have not insisted on a one particular style. You know, you, you you did not have to have a certain kind of a voice or come from a certain part of the country. You didn't have to sound like a, like a radio announcer. And and I think as a consequence, that you know, they got people who who had good experience as writers, good experience as journalists, and that was that was always given top priority. Well, I don't know whether anyone listening can relate to this, but I'm hearing Alexander Kendrick and Hughes Rudd yes. in my ear. And if you take two of those gentlemen, they had probably the least radio-voiced gift. <laughs> people would say, you know, you guys don't belong in broadcasting, but they were great. Well, Alexander Kendrick used to talk sort of like that. And and uh, and Hughes was uh, so down home boy from uh, from uh, from Texas, and and it uh, showed up in uh, things that he did. But but those guys were two of the most erudite people that you would ever oh, see. Oh, I know. And they're great. I remember on Sundays it used to be it was the wor- well, the world this week that Kendrick. This yeah. is the many. You're right. He sounded like a gangster. <laughs> well, yes, he sounded as as uh, the, the voice sounded as if you might be typecast. As a yes, but he. He really knew his stuff, and of course, Hughes is one of the best writers that this business has ever seen. He was a very—he he, he was able to say things uh, in a in a very sort of simple and direct, and sometimes very funny way. Let's talk uh, about the human voice for a second. I don't want to sound like Marshall McLuhan saying the medium is the message, but if if we listen to your vocal style, and and we we look at what you're doing in in some ways as being almost the end of an era in a way. I mean, we still have Paul Harvey. Some of us have great memories of Arthur Godfrey. And, and, and no matter what you think of those guys, there's still something to be said for the power of the human voice. And, you know, for the most part, I don't hear it a lot anymore. I mean, I'm not, I'm not enthralled by a lot of people. Maybe that's well, shallow of me, but, I mean, that's where you excel. It's I think not the only your writing, it's the way you speak it. In the radio days, and by the way, these are still the radio days, uh, but I think when, before television came along, uh, all you had was your voice, and so it was considered more important then. But even in those days, as we've said, I mean, people like uh, like Hughes and, and like uh, Alex Kendrick and, and, and a lot of others that I could think of did not necessarily have the, you know, the big pipes that you associate with uh, with radio broadcasters. I, and I think you know some of the people who did who did well in news in uh, in radio were people who had been in acting uh, before. You know, who had, uh, I'm talking about people like Paul Harvey and, and people like Mike Wallace. Oh, sure. People don't know Mike did a lot of uh, t- TV drama, didn't he? Yes, yes, he did, and a lot of uh, and a lot of commercials as well. Mm-hmm. But but uh, I think the thing the thing that Mike can do is he has a compelling way of of uh, expressing himself, and and uh, he can he can ad lib as well as anybody else in this business. So he's not you know he's not somebody that sort of depends on a script to to, uh, to do it. And he's he can he can do everything that you need to do in this business. And at the age of eighty, he's still doing it better than almost anybody. And Mike Wallace was one of a kind. So was Charles Osgood. More from Charlie. I don't know why I call him that. He was just such a nice guy. More from Charlie after a break. Save money and time by shopping with TOC Direct Mail. It comes to your mailbox every week and includes great buys on what you need and what you want. Look for TOC Direct in your mailbox this week. Welcome back. Today, an archive interview with Charles Osgood, who took over for Charles Carroll. 
Before the break, we were talking about how great Mike Wallace was, even in his later years, and that one of his greatest talents was being a good ad-libber. But what amazes me is when you go to a stakeout, like I covered the end of the second Simpson trial, the people who were out there covering that trial for a year who couldn't do a live report after it was over without looking at their notes. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are a lot of talking heads out there, unfortunately, who, who you know, can't ad-lib their way out of a paper sack, but they look nice. Well, and of course, looking nice uh, is uh, is important in television, and it's not important at all <laughs> in radio. <laughs> and uh, that's why I've always thought of myself as a guy who had a, you know, I have a face, uh, I was born for radio. Uh, I was interested in radio long before television came along, and I still don't think of myself, although I do the Sunday morning broadcast for, for, for the television network, I still think of myself not as a TV guy who does some radio shows, but as a radio guy who do, does a television show. Mm -hmm. This is five years now you've been doing this, right? That's right. It's it, To me, that's amazing. It feels more like about five minutes. How early do you have to get up? I don't mean to make a big point out of that, but I am not a morning person. Well, people say, how, do, how early do you have to get up on Sunday morning? Because that thing goes on at 9 o'clock. Uh, on the East Coast, it goes on from 9 to 10.30. But actually, Sunday morning is my morning to sleep in. Uh, I, I sleep until uh, 5 o'clock on Sunday morning. <laughs> and during the rest of the week, I get up at 2.30 in the morning. And that's because uh, the short-form broadcasts that I do on radio really do have to be written because they have to be produced and, and they, they last you know, a given length of time. And, and so you have, to ha you have to decide in advance what you're going to do and start writing it in advance. So that requires, uh, that requires going in early. So my routine is to set the alarm for 2.30 morning, which is, I don't know if you ever have worked the morning shift, but oh, yes. I, can, I can assure you that the 2.30 in the morning is not, has nothing to do with the morning at all. It's the middle of the night. No, and it's tough to convince people who will call you at some odd hour that it's the middle of the night to you. People who've never worked shift or odd work just don't understand how precious your sleep is. Well, if they call you at 4 o'clock in the afternoon... I mean, that seems a reasonable thing to do. In fact, it seems reasonable to most people to call you at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. But for me, that's, you know, that's right in the middle of the, of the sleep period. I hope you take your phone off the hook. Well, you can't really. I mean, we have five kids and, and uh, f friends and people, you know, need to get in touch with us. And so I, I don't uh, take the phone off the hook. But, um, I mean, most, most of the people who know us well also know that, you know, that I'm an early, early to bed guy. You have a life outside of broadcasting? Yes, actually. Yes. Amazingly enough, uh, the, the, even though I'm, I'm working six days a week now, uh, it still, uh, still is possible, even on the schedule, to have, uh, to have a normal uh, human life. So as I say, you know, my wife and I have, uh, have five kids, and uh, you know, we take vacations, and we, we do things that, that, that regular people do. In what? fact, our, the, only, the only way in which our life is any different is that I have this uh, outrageous schedule. And so I'm up and out before anybody else, uh, anybody else cracks an eye in the morning. What are your memories of Charles Corralt, and how did you feel about stepping into his shoes? Well, all of my memories of Corralt are, are of uh, you know, great respect and affection. He, uh, he was a hero of mine before I ever met him, before I came to work for CBS. Um, in fact, what I really wanted to do when I first came to work here, and I actually proposed this, and and now I understand perhaps it was a little too much to ask, but I, w I wanted to just spend a few weeks just following him around, seeing how, how, he, how he did what he did, because Charles had such a marvelous way with words, mo a marvelous way of talking into a microphone and into a, into a camera. And, you know, they say what, what works best in broadcasting is when it is 
most genuine. When what you, what you see is what you get. And uh, somehow Charles was able to distill that and be even more of himself uh, on camera and on mic than, uh, than than he was otherwise. But he was. But he. But that was the person. That was the, that was the pure Corral that you were getting. And uh, he had a wonderful way of uh, putting words together. A tremendous. He was also a tremendous uh, television performer. I mean, he knew he knew how to. Um, to move on camera, to you know, to change shots. He produced his own pieces. Uh, most reporters, when they go out on the field on the network level, have got a, a producer with them. He never did. Uh, he acted as, as his own producer, and he traveled around with a wonderful camera crew, Izzy Blackman and his people. And they, uh, you know, they worked uh, as a great team. And all of those years of the pieces on the road that he did, I mean, he, he set a standard and showed the rest of us how to do it. And, and nobody has ever done it as well. Well, you you look at the things he did, but also, you know, he was a, I was going to say good soldier, but as if it were some negative assignments he got. But I remember back in the 70s, he was doing a daily medical feature on CBS radio. Mm -hmm. And that's a tough assignment to make it seem interesting. But, you know, I sat there and listened. Well, I think Charles could read the telephone book and yeah. make, it, <laughs> make it sound interesting. Uh, he had that, you know, that wonderful way of uh, of talking. But, but in fact, uh, I think what made Charles... Well, work on radio and on television is that it was not just a question of words, you know, coming out of his, you know, off, off the page and, and out of his mouth. He engaged all of himself, that is to say, his brain and and his heart. And you you knew instinctively, as a listener, that somebody, a real person, was talking to you, and it made you want to listen. And he made it look easy. I mean, I'm sure he you you listened to what he said and the literacy of it that he you know labored over what he wrote. But but still, it seems so ad libbed. It seems so just off the cuff. Yes, uh, but you know they they say the great ones. They used to say of uh, Joe DiMaggio that uh, see it it just he makes it everything look so easy. And DiMaggio, I heard uh, after his death, I heard an interview that, that uh, had been done by uh, Bob Lipsight um, when he was doing pieces for Sunday Morning, and he he interviewed DiMaggio. And DiMaggio said, uh, people always t tell me that I make it look so easy, and it must be so easy for me. And he said, it's not easy. It's never been easy. He said, it may look easy, but it's, it's, it's not. He said, you know, I always am I'm trying very hard and trying to uh, do on each play. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to do the best that I can, and I give it as much, uh, much effort as I have to, to uh, you know, make sure that I'm, I'm there when the ball gets there, you know, to make sure that I'm focusing on the ball, doing all the things you're supposed to do to, uh, to hit a baseball. So you know, I think that that effortlessness is uh, uh, is a is a trick in a way. I mean, it, it it looks easy, but I know I know because I know Charles and and and, and did see him at work uh, for many many years that uh, that he labored over it, and and also that he was not relaxed going on the air. Hmm. He 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 was he was not thinking so much about relaxing himself as he was thinking about the audience and wanting the audience to be engaged. But, uh, in fact, at the beginning of the broadcast, the beginning of Sunday morning, uh, I'm usually standing by a little plexiglass uh, tower there that has what we call the index. It's got the subjects and the titles of the pieces that are going to be on there that morning. And I was told that we usually tape that part, and, uh, and most of the time we still do when we've, when we've got time to tape it. And the reason was that Charles wanted to, to tape that because he was afraid that the, he, he was afraid that he might fall down. He was actually afraid that he might pass out. Um, he was nervous. Wow! And that's that's. I know that's very hard to believe if you had seen him doing it all those years. But the fact is that he uh, he he would get a little woozy sometimes and and uh, under the pressure of it all. Isn't that amazing? You hear those stories about Red Skelton sometimes getting ill 
before his television show because he was yeah. just terrified. And yeah. yet, when you know the music starts and the show must go on. Yes, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was somewhere this side of terror in the case of Charles. But he, well, first of all, he knew that the the you know the tape technology was such that it was the same thing as being live, and sure. he wanted to he wanted to be sure that that it went the way it was supposed to. But also, he 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 did feel some anxiety about it, and because you are standing up and not sitting, I think he preferred to do those things where he's sitting on the stool. I think he felt a little more stable there. I cannot remember the circumstances, and I don't mean to pry here, but was his death unexpected? And what I'm trying to ask, I guess, is when you stepped into that, was there some thought that this was going to happen? Not at all. No, not at all. Uh, I think Charles was tired. Uh, he was not in very good physical condition. You know, he smoked too much and he weighed too much and uh his his uh i heard diane sawyer saying one time that uh, when charles died he was going to leave his body to science fiction <laughs> <laughs> but but in fact what he died of was lupus mm. and uh, a lupus that was not diagnosed until just a couple of days before he died i'll continue my conversation with charles osgood about the late charles carolt after another break <laughs> You've worked hard to start your own business. Now, all you need is customers. Let the original company, Incorporated, get the word out with advertising, print, direct mail, broadcasting, and the internet. Whether it's banners on the World Wide Web or designing your own website, the original company can sure put you in touch with potential clients. But there's more. We can provide marketing research, media management, public relations, and other services. Make your business our business. Contact the original company, Incorporated, online at originalcompany.com. My guest in this archive interview is Charles Osgood, who replaced Charles Carrold on the CBS Morning Show. And I didn't realize till we did the interview how sick Charles Carrold was and how those final months or so he spent on the CBS Sunday Show with lupus, which was not diagnosed, as Osgood told us moments ago until right before his death, how really sick Charles Carroll was. He was just exhausted, although he, and I, I think that had something to do with uh, with him wanting to stop doing Sunday morning. Uh. He, you know, he had not really done the traveling, the on-the-road uh, thing. He had not done that for, for almost 20 years. Um, he, he did occasional pieces from, from the road. Most of the most of those travel pieces that you see are things that, uh, that he'd recorded back before Sunday morning began. Mm-hmm. But but I think so. I think that he was not in very and and because because he smoked so much and because it, you know he had his he had had uh, it was sort of taxing on his system, taxing on his cardiovascular system, and uh, and he was often short of breath when he, you know when he, if he we usually prepare the broadcast in the in the uh, CBS newsroom and then move on to whatever the, the studio is where the, where the broadcast originates. And Charles, you know, it was not easy for Charles to move around. He had he had. Uh, he had he was a year uh, younger than me, and uh, and yet you could see that he was having more difficulty, uh, you know, moving around. But anyway, he did. But he did not quit for reasons of health. He he just he he wanted to spend some time. He wanted to go to some of these places that he had been uh, while doing the on the road broadcasts and actually spend some time with the people. And and he always had said uh, that he thought that he was kind of fortunate in this business because uh, when some reporters go into a cover a story sometimes they they're not entirely sure that they'd be welcomed back but he he was always invited to come back uh, because uh, because of the kind of man that he was people made uh, made friends with him and always always were glad to see him so he wanted to go back to some of these places in America that that uh, that he had 
report on, but can only stay you know, briefly and and really spend you know spend a few weeks there. Well, you know, one of the things being a child of rural America that I was always impressed with is that a reporter like Charles Corralt with fewer ethics, or is it less? I don't know whether ethics is a collective noun, would have gone into some of these really rural situations and actually made fun of them. Or he gave dignity to every place he went. I mean, I really enjoyed the fact that even if he came across a, a real character somewhere who was completely out of touch with society, Charlie uh, never made light of that. No, in fact, I think most of America assumed, I mean, Charles did come from uh, from North Carolina, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of this music of North Carolina in his uh, way of speaking. But a lot of people assumed that he lived there in the Piney Woods someplace, and, and that he would come out of his cabin every so often and get into the van and travel around. <clears throat> the fact is that he lived in New York City. <laughs> he lived in Greenwich Village, and he stayed there uh, you know, as often as he could, he, he went around and, and you know, he did travel quite a, quite a bit. But I think uh, you know Charles was very comfortable in New York. He was he was he too. We were, t- we were talking about how really sophisticated somebody like uh, Hughes Rudd was. Well, Charles was was also a sophisticated man, and he had done his share of, of standard news reporting. You know, he had he had met presidents and kings, and uh, he had that common touch which uh, which he which he brought with him everywhere he went, and he treated everybody alike. And that, I think that's one of the things that we. You know, really respected most about him. Well, and we forget, as I was talking about his medical reports, that not everything he did was sidebars. I mean, I can remember political conventions and and other things where he sure. was called upon to to do regular reporting and did that extremely well. Yes, he did, and he brought that touch to it. You know, sure. that, that we we all wish we had. How long did he do the the Sunday show? Well, the broadcast is now twenty years old, and and he did the first fifteen years, and I've done the last five. It's, but I think that the, the reputation that the broadcast has, and the, the devoted audience that it has, and the, you know all of the all of the, the what makes Sunday morning be what it is is the is the is what he set down he and, and Chad Northfield, who was the first producer, uh, that this broadcast was going to be, and it's supposed to be like a Sunday newspaper, mm-hmm. uh, and the pieces are longer, and more measured and more thoughtful, and we try to cover subjects that. That during the week, the, the television just doesn't have any time for. So we do pieces about the arts, and instead of, I think the the way I like to think of it is that instead of finding some terrible thing somewhere that's not, that has happened or that somebody has done and wagging our fingers at them and saying that awful and that doesn't make you sick to your stomach, what he liked to do is to point to somebody who was doing something wonderful, something amusing, or something to help people. And say, look at that man! Isn't that terrific? Or look at that woman! Isn't that? It, you know, it makes you proud to be American. And I think that's that was pretty much in the uh, in the background of every piece that he did. How do you get your story ideas? I mean, on the on the daily four that you have to do, you've got the wire service and your affiliates yes, and everything. But I, I remember somebody telling me that. Uh, People would call Lowell Thomas, the mayor of a small town, you know, and say, yes. hey, we've got something really neat happening. Do, do, do you find stories sometimes being offered that way? People, oh, sure. Because sure. you come I, up with these really arcane things sometimes. Well, the, the daily pieces that we do for radio, because there are four of them, um, you know, you, you have a, a, quite a lot of opportunity to, uh, you know, to do stories and do things that are a little different. Uh, if you're just doing one piece a week or something of that sort, it's not, it's uh, it's... It's a little more difficult, but we, we, we get, you know, tons of, of suggestions all the time. If you do a piece, you know, about somebody who, uh, you know, is, is helping blind kids or something like that, if you do one story like that, then you'll get dozens of 
letters and suggestions from other people who are, who are helping blind kids. And you can only, you know, you want, you want the, the pieces to be different, and so you can't always... But it, it's funny, but it, most of the pieces that he, that he did, maybe even all the pieces that Charles did on the road, had never been done on network television before. In most cases, they had not been on, even on local television. And I think it's that in probably about half the time, it hadn't even been you know reported at all in the local press. It hadn't even been recognized locally as something that you'd want to do a story about. Do you remember the story he did about the man in was Minnesota or the Dakota someplace who was building a highway? Yes. I'd love to get a copy of that. This fellow spent the, the better part of his adult life flattening out and paving a road because, what, he couldn't get the county to build it or something? Yes, and, and he set himself out to do it. He wondered how hard could it be. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, so he, yes, you're quite right. He, I think he had been working on that road for 23, 24 years at the time that Charles did the piece, and, and he still had a, a ways to go. But, yes, I mean, that, that, once you find out about somebody like that, and Charles could tell that story so well, I mean, mm. he, he, would, he, he would interview the man, but it would not be, he didn't have a sense of it was an interview. You know, it was a conversation, and the fellow would tell you why he was doing it. And something can get to be kind of an obsession with you. You know, I've started to do this thing, and this has become my life's work, and I'm going to finish it. I'm going to try to finish it anyway. And so, you know, it's that kind of thing of, of a person showing some kind of passion about something. That's that's what you try to. That's what he looked for, rather than for somebody who was, uh, you know, had found a new a new way to make some money or something. It's too bad there's not the time and the money and the personnel and the inclination anymore to find five or six of those stories and follow up and see where those people are now or if the guy ever finished his road or died. Well, we, we have done some of that. Charles, uh, you know, we, on the 20th anniversary broadcast, which we did uh, earlier this year, uh, we, we played back some of the pieces that we had done in the past. And, and, and the broadcast... Uh, the weekend that Charles died, you know, he died a couple of years ago on the Fourth of July. Yeah, and uh, he died on a, on a Friday, and then uh, then two days later we had our broadcasts. And in the, in, in the intervening time, we put together a, a broadcast that was all about Coralt and and his you know his approach and, and the contribution that he had made to uh, to the Sunday morning broadcast. And I think. Um, I, you know, I think that he, that he gave it enough momentum. That's why when I say he did the first 15 and I've done the last five, I think, you know, the last five years, as it's, it could all be explained on, on the basis of momentum. We've just done what he told us to do, and we've done it for five more years. Still following orders. Yep. You know, when he died that weekend, uh, I wanted to pay tribute to him on the air, and I knew that somewhere in my archive I had a little five-inch reel of tape of one of his shows done back in the 70s, and it was about time zones, which I love that kind of stuff. So I was determined to find it. I tore up my apartment that weekend, and it was in the last box I looked in. Oh, it <laughs> took me two days. You know, I wouldn't have done it for anyone less, maybe, but it took me two days to get everything boxed back up. Do you know why it is that... that uh you always find something in the last place you look? No, I've always wondered that. I, I can tell you the reason for that. It's because when you find it, you stop. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, let's let's talk about the, the show and you. I think we both want to pay homage to Charles Corral, but there are other things to talk about. When you talk, uh, when you meet people, particularly young people, I have a fear that it's not going to be too long before young kids are not going to know the difference between fluff, tabloid, and journalism. Uh, what are your feelings on that? I mean, I run into more people who said, I saw this on, you know, or I heard this on the Internet, and, and, and they quote UPI, and we didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, it kind of right. scares me where all that's going. Yeah, I think a lot of those distinctions are being blurred. But, uh, I mean, I think the problem is more serious than that. Uh, uh, it's not just young kids outside the business that uh, that are not able to make that distinction. Sometimes it's grown-ups inside the business. Mm. 
no, I say, well, all you have to do is just, you know, get some some uh, good-looking person in front of the in front of the camera and uh, put the put the words there and and let that let that person smile their way through, uh, you know, th- and pleasantly through uh, through reading that copy, and that will that will pass. And I'll, you know, you, you know better. I know better. Well, Charlie, for those of us who love the sound of the human voice and a literate turn of phrase, you have brought us an awful lot of joy over the years, and, and keep going. Thank you, Dennis, and and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Charles Osgood, who replaced Charles Carroll. Within the last half hour, there's a good chance you were on your smartphone. Or there's a good chance you were on your laptop, tablet, or desktop searching the Internet for some much-needed information. As a business owner or manager, you've got products and services, and you need to reach new customers. We can help. TOC Direct Digital can help build you a custom digital campaign. Just email digital at originalcompany.com. That's digital at originalcompany.com. Welcome back. And now we're going to finish up by going to London. I uh, needed, let's say, to uh, have a pit stop when I was in London, and I saw this elderly couple carrying some stuff into an old building. So I helped them, and I thought I'd ask them, is there a restroom, a loo in here? The woman ended up to be Mrs. Nicholson, who with her husband had built a museum to the British Garden in the old cathedral used by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And they bought the building because it wasn't a church anymore. It was deconsecrated in 1972. And the reason for that, and the original reason, was the fact that um, until the war, there was a clustering population, uh, you know, of hundreds of years' duration, almost up to the railings of the churchyard. With the war came extensive bombing, absolutely flattened all round about here. The um, fabric of this building didn't suffer at all, but all the windows were blown in. But of course it meant that the population was dispersed, and this meant a diminution in the um, congregation. And it struggled on and struggled on, and in 1972 it was closed. And in 19, and, they, and the, the church commissioners who owned it um, left it, hoping to get an alternative use for something, you know, a library or something like that. All the suggestions that were put forward fell through, and there was a demolition order on it for the end of November 1976. And by that time, the roof had fallen in, the floor had fallen in, the whole place was about four inches thick under centuries of black soot and pollution. There was a hunting park called, which is now Kennington Park, which is just at the end of this road, at the end of Lambeth Road, and that was where the king hunted deer and so on. There was also a great deal of industry along the river in, in boat building. But of course then it was little more than a village and the only great house was Lambeth Palace. And that, that is just over the wall from where we're standing now. And that's the London home of the Archbishop of Canterbury. But this church, which is now a museum, is much older than the palace. The original church was built in 1062 by um, the Countess Goda, who was a sister of Edward the Confessor when he was building Westminster Abbey. And there have been about three churches on the site since, but never actually pulling the churches down and starting again. They've been added to over the centuries. And from medieval times, 
um, it, a lot of it has been left. The pillars in the building itself um, go down into the bases of the medieval pillars. So we know exactly the size, um, the dimensions of that medieval church. This may sound rather naive to say this, but I think one of the things growing up in the States that it is easy to forget is that how new the American culture is in many ways compared to many cities here in Europe. That many of the things we would consider to be nearly ancient in the United States are nothing compared to what you'll find here on, in the UK and on the continent. That's absolutely true. When my husband and I went over for our first visit to America in 1983 to Virginia, this was a thing that struck us when we were taken around, particularly Williamsburg, and shown, you know, this dates back to 16-something and this is so ancient. And one thought, well, my goodness, you know, of course it is ancient to you, naturally. But there's, a, um, there's such a wonderful link here, just where we're standing, because that tomb over there, is um, the tomb where the whole family of Tradescant is buried. And the younger John Tradescant, because they were two, father and son, and the younger John Tradescant um, went three times to America, plant hunting. Um, the first time he went was 1622, and then 1634, and then he went a third time. And um, brought back so many of the things that you actually see in this garden today from your country. Hmm. Rosemary, let's get to the, the very heart of the matter, and this is where I feel bad sometimes that it's radio and not, not television. What is the fascination with the country garden, whether it be uh, photos of Versailles or some of the palaces or Callaway Gardens in, in the States? There, there is such a wonderful organized gentility about it. How far back does the tradition go, and what kind of comments do you get from people? <laughs> a thousand a questions. questions there, yeah. All rolled into one. Well, I think... The thing is, the, um, the, um, the, the question of the, of the importance of gardens, I mean, it goes right back to the earliest. Uh, as far as the monarchy goes back, they were always, as they were known, they're not so much as gardens, but as pleasances, where they, you know, walked and they picked their flowers and so on. And, of course, the great thing was um, plants and herbs grown for medicinal use or for... Um, my goodness, when you think of sort of medieval halls where there were um, just arrow slits for windows and they strewed the fresh herbs on the floor um, among rushes um, to keep it fresh and also for the fragrance. Mm. But the importance of gardens, yes, goes back very, very far. But there is an enormous resurgence now in this country and in your country uh, for uh, the old historic flowers. I think people are beginning or have begun over the last years to be terribly interested in the origins of the plants, how they came in, you know, how they came into this country or how they came into your country. When my husband and I were over there in 83, we went over to take part in a symposium in the Valentine Museum in Richmond mm -hmm. on that very subject, the exchange of plants across the sea from you to us and from us to you, and it was absolutely riveting. You know, I never thought about plants coming this direction. I can see very much that settlers who came from uh, the British Isles, who came from Europe to settle in America, yes. would have brought part of their culture with them, and that certainly would have been some plants and flowers. But I, I never stopped to think that there would be an attraction to bring them back this way, the ones that, of course, were not native here. Absolutely. Tremendous importance. I mean, the, that younger, both the Tradescans, but the younger one, who was the one who travelled furthest, going to America, um, he was absolutely fascinated in anything that was new, growing there. 
when we went, we were staying in Williamsburg, we were taken out to Jamestown to see the very place where the early settlers landed at Jamestown. And we were taken through woods, and there were growing sumac trees, yucca, mm -hmm. all absolutely new to us. And there over there is a yucca, and we've got two, no, not there are two yuccas, there's a sumac tree over there. But you see, with us, it's just a shrub, that one over there, mm -hmm. where the gentleman in the green jacket is. And of course, in your country, they're trees. The windows had all been vandalized and were boarded up, and the whole of this area was just the local rubbish tip. It was knee-high grass, no paths, of course. And um, you couldn't see the, the, the recumbent tombstones. And those two, that's the Tredespans over there, and this one's Bly of the Bounty and his wife, Admiral Bly of the captain Bounty. Captain Admiral now. Yes, well, he I'm was. I'm used to calling him Captain, Admiral, yes. But he was Captain, yes. Isn't it funny how the culture is? I picture Charles Lawton when you say that for some reason. Yes, from from the movie. No, I should not at all. <laughs> because Charles Lawton depicted him as such a tyrant, and he wasn't like that at all. I mean, good naval discipline, but not a real tyrant. But those tombs, which as you see, are quite substantial. You couldn't see them for nettles and brambles and ivy climbing all over them. My husband and I, when we lived in the country, we had a lovely garden. And we'd all, but just as amateur gardeners, mm -hmm. but we'd always been terribly interested and fascinated by plant hunters and what motivated them to go so far afield and bring back such treasure for our gardens. And of all the plant hunters, the Tredescans were the ones that interested us most. And it was just to see the tomb that we came down here one Saturday afternoon from Chelsea, where we live, over the river, and um, were ill-prepared for what met our sight, because here was this ruin. And, uh, I mean, not only every sort of um, filth and rubbish and old bits of bicycle and car body and so on lying about. It, it must have just been a, a gut-wrenching experience for you when you finally got here. It was. It was. Well, actually, I said to my husband, because there were also homeless tramps and alcoholics lying about under bits of cardboard and carpet. And I said to my husband, I don't want to go any further. I don't want to see the Tredeskans too. Let's get away as quickly as possible. And then you mentioned to me earlier about having seen the um, walkway. 1977. I, I should point out this is a, a, a walkway and it goes across the Thames uh, to the area where Parliament is and I just happen to notice that, that that restoration dates from 77. That's right and we noticed that uh, we read that this was going to come about um, to recognize the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977 and it was especially to bring the hundreds of visitors due in London for that Silver Jubilee to this part of London, to bring them over La London and Lambeth Bridge so that they, you know, could see a different part of London. And a different part of London, that is, and a museum to gardening organized by a husband and wife who were wonderful hosts, and Lord, did she have a lovely accent. Earlier on, Charles Osgood, and I said I was going to play Charles Carroll's Goodbye on the Sunday show, and here it is. Charles Osgood appreciates poems and often commits poetry himself. There is a rhyme by Clarence Day which says what I want to say. Farewell, my friends, farewell and hail. I'm off to seek the Holy Grail. I cannot tell you why. Remember, please, when I am gone, t'was aspiration led me on. Tiddly, widdly, toodaloo, all I want is to stay with you. But here I go. Goodbye.
that's it for this week. Don't forget, I've got an easy email address, kind of silly, but you'll remember it. Bingo, B-I-N-G-O, at earthlink.net. Dennis Daly, join me next week right here. Oh, and I think there's baseball next week, so I'll likely see you in two weeks right here.